asymmetric warfare is the revenge of the weak against the strong. And the Russians have been smart enough to look at our open Western societies and find ways to insidiously influence them. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, and joining us from Washington is FP columnist Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Also, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history, and Susan Hennessy, who is a fellow in National Security and Governance Studies at Brookings. She is also managing editor of the excellent Lawfare blog. ER nerds, do you have any ideas or comments or suggestions or just what I'm really getting a lot of recently, pathetic sob story about why you absolutely need an ER mug? You can email those to us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. They're really kind of heartbreaking. But I like the ones that are like, hi, I'm in the Solomon Islands. I'm in a tiny boat bailing away. Please send a mug before I drown. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from another not-so-tiny studio high above Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. I want to pose a thought here, and I'd like you guys to give it some discussion. We've learned just in the past few days that the Russians may well have been involved in the effort to tip the scales in the Brexit vote. We also learned, parenthetically, that an American billionaire in the, the Mercer family was also involved in that discussion. But what this suggests to me is that there is something much bigger going on here that we're, we, we may be losing sight of because it connects to a lot of different things. But it seems that Russia is involved in a massive information warfare campaign that has been going on for multiple years and that includes intervention in the U.S. election, intervention in the British uh, referendum, intervention in the French uh, election, possible intervention in other European elections, including hacking associated with the Germans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, support for parties like nationalist parties in Italy and elsewhere, plus support for WikiLeaks, the embrace of Snowden, the use of their cyber resources to dig up stuff on opposition parties and others and leak it out, often with no fingerprints attached. This is a kind of a big thing. And, and in some respects, all the talk about does Trump have a tie or, or whatever, to me, is kind of secondary to the idea that there's this massive effort being made to destabilize the Western alliance. And the president of the United States has actually, as a matter of course, in the election campaign and since then, abetted that policy. He's known of it. It's been visible. He has learned more and more of it. And as he learns more and more of it, he continues to abet it. And it is something that is having material consequences for the way the whole planet works. Am I being alarmist? On this rare occasion, David, you are not being alarmist. This is actually the one <laughs> the to worry about. time for everything. <laughs> 
Thank you. Thank you guys for your support. But go on. Do go on. No, I think this really is the one to worry about. I can't think of a reasonable explanation for the position that the president of the United States perpetuates on Russia and his flat out refusal to acknowledge the legitimacy of intelligence community concerns in all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies and to instead credit the Russians with goodwill and good behavior when they are manifestly not behaving well. This is a genuine danger. The Congress really needs to investigate it. I think the FBI really needs to investigate it because this is the right thing to get upset about in the Trump administration, in my judgment. Yes, I think there's a few things. One, there's the question of Donald Trump and Russia, and that's unbelievably alarming in some sense. I, I don't think, I know people have been focused on it and concerned about it. I don't think they've been focused and concerned enough. It strikes me as just the absolute most important story that we're seeing. Um, and that's sort of in one bucket. And then the other is Russian activities worldwide. And those are, it's really hard to think about how, how we should be drawing lines on that. So one, yes, clearly the Russians are supporting or, or sort of helping helping uh, prop up these global populist movements, right? That's part of their effort to just basically undermine the Western order. That said, you know, whenever we talk about, well, you know, did they interfere in the Brexit vote? So I think it's important to note, like, that's uh, one MP has made that accusation without making it clear whether or not there's any evidence based on that. Um, and actually, Downing Street has said they have no indication of that whatsoever. And that's distinct from um, uh, UK officials, UK intelligence officials who uh, along with German and and, uh, and French intelligence officials, did come out and say they saw the kind of, of hacking and, and some measures that were aimed at their future elections. But it's entirely plausible to think that there would be some level of sort of interference or support for the Brexit campaign. It certainly is a policy that is hugely favorable to Russian interests. The question is, what means are appropriate? So a few days before the Brexit vote, President Obama wrote an op-ed in a British newspaper urging people to vote against Brexit. So the notion of other countries trying to influence the policies of, of allies or adversaries, that's allowed, right? And, and it's at least allowed whenever it's non-covert, right? Sort of it says what it is, but it's also allowed in other more subtle ways. And so whenever we sort of think about, you know, Russia is interfering in X, well, there are some ways that they're allowed to in some ways that there aren't. And it's just it's becoming really difficult to decide what is worth responding to, where the real threat originates. So I think Great it's point. worth, I think that's all Absolutely right, Susan. And I think it's worth pointing out that here is what Russia and Donald Trump have in common, among other things. They're both doing exactly what they said they would do. Donald Trump, we're all, you know, as has been pointed out many times, uh, he campaigned on a platform of doing exactly all the crazy stuff he's now doing. We thought, surely, he, he jests, but turned out he wasn't. And Russia, too. I mean, within the U.S. military, there's been a lot of discussion in the last few years of a, uh, an article published in 2013 by the chief of the Russian general staff, chief of the Russian armed forces, Valery Gerasimov, which has come to be called the Gerasimov Doctrine, although that may dignify it a little too much, essentially laying out a theory of how Russia was going to have to engage in combat 
but understanding combat very, very broadly as including political warfare, information campaigns, and so on. And just putting out there, this is what Russia is going to have to do. This is the kind of thing that Russia is going to have to do. And Russia is doing exactly what Drasimov said Russia was going to have to do. And it's not remotely surprising. And the reason, of course, you know, we've had lots of conversations about hybrid conflict, about conflict in the gray zone. And the whole point of engaging in that kind of gray zone conflict is precisely to sow confusion amongst others about, is this worth responding to? Because everything is designed to stay sort of just below the threshold that will trigger a, a really significant response. But also there's a huge danger there, which is that as lots of tiny little things mount up and it's really hard to decide, or they should they be responded to or not? Are they within the pale? Or are they beyond the pale? That then one other little thing feels like the straw that breaks the camel's back and suddenly you have a rapid escalation. I think that Russia is absolutely doing this. I honestly, I, don't, I still have no idea what to think about Trump himself and the degree to which he he is a witting versus unwitting player in this whole particular drama. But it is it is scary, and I would say that Russia at the moment is running rings around us. I think one thing that is worth considering in terms of whether or not the United States needs to think differently about this engagement is we think about sort of are we in phase one or phase two or where where are we in a conflict? And, and you know, if you ask the United States, like, where were we in a conflict with Russia or, with, or in Europe or what, what phase of conflict Europe was in with Russia, they would say, what phase, right? What are you talking about? But if you ask them, you know, what phase do you think Russia thinks that they're in, would probably be a different answer. And so this notion that we've been engaging, sort of using a, a doctrine and a set of assumptions based on our perspective, and it turns out the other side has really different uh, sort of conceptions of what our, our sort of engagement looks like and whether or not that's a lesson that the way we think about these things just is not adequate to the modern task. We have been thinking about these things in an incredibly self-indulgent, sloppy way, because since the end of the Cold War, our margin of error has been so incredibly wide, right? That asymmetric warfare is the revenge of the weak against the strong. And the Russians have been smart enough to look at our open Western societies and find ways to insidiously influence them. And we just need to up our game. We need to take them as seriously as they are taking us. Well, I think that that's true. And I think that what we are seeing here is the beginning of a new phase in international relations with, and it's not that we haven't tried to do these things before, but the ability of governments to do this on a widespread basis, relatively undetected, with apparently very little consequences for them, and yet with some substantial effects to benefit them, is, I think, just worthy of note quite apart from the Trump administration, the moment, et cetera. There is something kind of weird to me, of course, that somehow we have this alliance between the goals of the Russians with regard to destabilizing the Atlantic Alliance, weakening the EU, pushing for the rise of the right, and the U.S. government, the U.S. administration, important financiers in the U.S. government who also seem to want to blow up the EU, who also seem to support at this moment the rise of the right. And, and that, that is another aspect of this whole thing that is unprecedented and perplexing. And the question is, how deep is it? Is this nationalism 
entering a, a kind of a golden age of nationalism? Is it a quirky coincidence of the moment? Any thoughts? I agree with your description, David, but one of the outlying pieces of data is that this president, who's so, as you rightly point out, sees his goals aligning with Vladimir Putin's and does not see his goals aligning with our treaty allies, he nonetheless appointed a cabinet full of people who don't share that view. And again, I don't know what to make of that, but they appear to... All of them in their congressional testimony uh, said much more conventional American foreign policy views about Russia. That's clearly where congressional leaders in the Foreign Affairs and Armed Services Committees are. So maybe he felt like he needed to appoint this cabinet in order to get them confirmed because the Congress might have not. But again, he chose them. And so of course he then proceeded to marginalize them. So fair point. Fair point. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's sort of baffling about all of this is this unverified dossier. You know, totally salacious allegations. Maybe ignore the hotel part and care more about the like he's he has blackmail material and he's in someone's pocket and they paid right. Just absolutely wild allegations. And then you look at and you want to sort of say, well, I, I'm responsible and I'm going to wait for that to be verified and I'm not going to sort of give any credence to that. And then you look at the behavior of Donald Trump as president of the United States. And sort of, I agree, right, the appointment of certain individuals does seem to indicate some level of, of cognitive dissonance on the issue. But if you actually look at what he's done and said, if, he, if none of that was true, right, or if, if it was true, wouldn't he be acting exactly the way he is? His posture towards Russia and his sort of, his willingness to blow up all of these alliances and, and be really talked of, get in a fight with the Australians for Christ's sake, <laughs> and then and and yet has never had an unkind word to say about Vladimir Putin. That's but, the stuff okay. that just raises the so suspicion. absolutely. But I still wonder, you know, Occam's razor. You don't need an elaborate conspiracy theory to explain this if you just think that Donald Trump is a reality TV type guy and all publicity is good publicity and he's A, infantile and narcissistic and B, he just likes pissing people off. I mean, I mean so, so it is entirely, it seems to me perfectly plausible that he's in the pocket of the Russians. It seems to me equally plausible that he's just an asshole. <laughs> but what is sanctions, what is lifting Crimean sanctions against Russia do for United States foreign policy. He doesn't even care. In but you're, first. you're presuming that he cares. You're presuming yeah. that he gives Your theory of one the case hoot is flat about God. the United States or its future, and that he is capable of thinking in those terms and capable of dis uh, capable of thinking in any terms other than what is good for the Donald Trump brand, which he also thinks about in a rather uh, short-sighted way. I don't yeah. think Donald Trump has ever spent 10 seconds thinking about what's good for the United States. So the problem with the conspiracy theory is exactly as Rosa has mentioned, which is it requires an intellectually <laughs> elegant frame of reference and consistent pattern of behavior as opposed to what it looks like. I agree with you. His reflexes on Russia are consistent. 
but his behavior is all over the place. Yeah, although it, Russia is the one thing that he has actually been steady on. I mean, he has well, shifted been his perfectly steady on, on everything. Been, I mean, his rhetoric, policy, his rhetoric on, on a number of issues has been Mexico, quite consistent. Mexico, he's been steady on. Yeah, the wall, voter fraud, you know, and all sorts of other issues where there is no basis for his level of certainty and no apparent political gain from it either, since they're manifestly untrue, et cetera. David, do you have a view on this? Well, I do. I'm enjoying the conversation that's going on. On on the one hand, in a material sense, the most important thing that's happened is that the United States has identified a problem or we've seen a problem and the government is taking almost the opposite or having almost the opposite response to it that would be an objective assessment of what's in the interest of the United States. In other words, the first thing is it's a lousy policy. It's a lousy policy response to a clear Russian effort to destabilize the most important alliance in our world, right? So that's, you know, we can debate the role of the Trump administration all we want. Also, secondly, however, you don't need a very complicated conspiracy to draw several conclusions. One, the administration's policy response not only is bad, but it's linked to an administration with very deep, close ties to the Russian government. Excellent point. Those are beyond beyond dispute. And that the administration actually called for the activity, or people in the administration called for this kind of destructive activity during the campaign, and thus abetted it, also true. And currently, the administration is in the position of denying that this is actually an issue and obstructing investigations into this issue in as many ways as it possibly can. And so I think, A, we have a lousy policy on a true threat to the United States, and B, there is plenty of evidence to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that this administration is actually making it easier for the Russians to have this policy. I agree. And I think both of that raises the importance of Congress. So I I love to beat up on congressional Republicans as much as anyone. Corey's giving me the side eye right now. But this is an area, actually, in which a number of um, Republican members of Congress just deserve nothing but credit. Senator John McCain, Senator Lindsey Graham. There are a number of people that have, over the objections of their party, come out and said, he lifts Russia sanctions, we'll impose them through legislation. He moves on this, we're going to move on that, and has been really unequivocal in saying, if this is our policy position, and if the the president of the United States is is adversarial in this policy position, like we will will rise to our our constitutional obligations. Uh, The other sort of piece of Congress that, and and it's related because it, it is sort of actually related to the personal integrity of individuals in Congress, and that's that the American people deserve to know the truth. They deserve to have a full accounting of the facts, a legitimate and thorough investigation. As with any uh, sort of scandal, right, it's relatively rare to understand the full story at the outset. There are lots of things that are suspicious that end up being having innocuous explanations. And then, of course, there's stuff that nobody ever realized. And so this just raises the importance of a really serious congressional investigation. It, It raises the importance of actually an investigation that the current SCI inquiry is not sufficient, especially considering Chairman Burr's conduct. Um, and so it's, it's going to require something that looks more like the select committees we saw during Watergate or Iran-Contra. And so that's... Well, 
The final point to, to pull it all together is just the most important element of a, a thorough congressional investigation is a chair and members that are actually interested in getting to the bottom of things. That's the most important for legitimacy and it's the most important to actual success. And so that's why whatever form this investigation is going to take, the single most important thing is getting a credible chairman, um, somebody who can reassure the American people that they are really there to get to the bottom of things. Seems unlikely that we're going to get that. I don't know. I think Susan Collins has stepped forward in a way that would position her ideally for that job. I do hear mounting calls. Um, there was originally sort of originally for some form of independent inquiry, and, and Mitch McConnell managed to sort of quell them by saying, oh, no, 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 there is going to be this inquiry. It's going to be in the SSCI. It's nothing new. It's nothing different. This all sort of falls within their own, uh, within their existing oversight functions. Warner and Burr came out with this, you know, very aggressive statement. They, we will do this right. We will get to the bottom of things. That has all sort of been shredded by, by any number of things. The question now becomes what form the next inquiry takes. You know, one of the interesting... Can, can I ask you, a, can I just ask a legal question of the two lawyers on the panel? Do the White House has admitted to calling up, or it has been, and many people have acknowledged the White House has called up the Justice Department, as well as uh, leaders in the Hill who are involved in these investigations and sought from them statements saying that the investigations are amounting to nothing in the midst of the investigations. Now, that seems to me to have two consequences. One, uh, it seems to me to be politicizing the investigations. But two, it seems to me to be sending a strong message to all of these people about the outcome that the White House wants in these investigations, which seems to me to be perilously close to obstructing the investigations or trying to intimidate them. I'm not sure whether that's actually technically illegal. Do you guys have a view on it? Yeah, so look, the protections of an independent Department of Justice and an independent FBI are largely normative. They're incredibly important. They matter a great deal. But in terms of sort of the pure law, there are DOJ regulations. They're, they're sort of a process that's supposed to be adhered to. But there aren't actually laws about what that kind of conduct uh, can look like. And frankly, if Congress did try and write a law, I'm not sure it would pass sort of separations of powers muster. This this has really been something that presidents, Republicans, and Democrats past have have treated really seriously. And when we've had violations of that, right, uh, sort of the the final straw of Nixon, right, all these things that 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 actually has had very serious consequences. The strange thing here is that. The White House is sort of it's breaching the norm as a first, right? Sort of it's like as as if a opening of salvo, right? And again, it looks as though they did so. I'm not saying not because they're nefarious. It is nefarious, but also because they don't appear to even know that the rules exist. Now, the important thing is the FBI said no, and so the thing to really watch is what are the agencies that are saying. I'm not doing that. And what are the actors and, 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 uh, and places that are actually willing to have those conversations? And I will put in a little plug for uh, Susan's organization, Lawfare, the Lawfare blog, where there have been a couple of very, very, very useful posts on precisely the question you asked, David, uh, laying out some of the details for both why this is inappropriate, but also why it's largely a matter of uh, norms and executive policy rather than legal prohibitions. I mean, well, there, there clearly would be a point at which there would be legal prohibitions, but 
I don't think we're is it, isn't it also yet. true that on the House side and on the Senate side within the CIA people actually said you know went along with the suggestion of the White House and thus compromised the their investigations. Theoretically. So, yes. So there's been reports that Mike Pompeo uh, participated in the phone call and there's been um, reports that Richard Burr did. I don't know. um, Both of those inquiries are a little bit different than the FBI inquiry, which is an actual criminal investigation. So if we're talking about obstruction, that really only applies to a limited set of circumstances. Certainly those people have shredded their credibility and have shredded uh, and destroyed their ability to stand up in front of the American people and say, I don't care that this person appointed me. I don't care that this is, uh, uh, you know, administration of the same policy. I am interested in discharging my duty to the Constitution and to the American people. If you're willing to start walking down this road of playing the White House's game, even in ways that seem small and inconsequential, I think the response just has to be that you have disqualified yourself from the process. I agree. I agree. So a couple of uh, things strike me. One, the dog that has not yet barked in this is Dan Coates, former senator of Indiana, nominee to be the director of national intelligence. Maybe he and Tillerson are like on vacation together. Um, (laughs) He's not confirmed yet, right? That's the point. He's not confirmed. So Congress should actually do their supervisory duty and ask him these questions in his confirmation hearing and should be unwilling to confirm as the as Mike Pompeo's boss somebody who would tolerate that kind of collusion with the White House on an issue this important. I also point out that Dan Coats was one of the members of Congress specifically subject to Russian sanctions as John McCain was subject to Russian sanctions because they were identified as particularly opposed to the Russian government. So he is well positioned to be a voice of integrity in this process. And I very, very much hope he will choose to. And I very, very much hope Congress will refuse to confirm him if he abjures in that regard. Right. And, and I think using the confirmation hearings not only to extract commitments from the you know appointees themselves uh, regarding how they're going to conduct themselves, but also using the confirmation power, their little, their carrot and their stick of getting, of incentivizing better conduct on, on behalf of the White House or on the part of the White House, because those are all important authorities. So the confirmation sort of power actually is a really important one. And so uh, to the extent somebody can stand up to, to President Trump and say, hey, um, you're, you're about to see a lot of your nominees go down in flames um, if you don't start conducting uh, yourself with more integrity, respecting the process. Because well, but we haven't seen. You know, we've seen. You know, sort of people like Tillerson glide through this process, and it's unclear. You know, I mean, the Secretary of Commerce owned a bank called the Bank of Cyprus, which was co-owned by a Russian oligarch who's extremely close to Putin, and there's a whole bunch of questions about whether or not the bank had dealings with the Trump organization and whether it was one of the funnels of money from Russia into the Trump organization. We know that the Secretary of Commerce actually helped provide financing and bailing out both for the Trump organization and for Kushner's family. Um, and and yet, you know, it's this is not a big issue that's being broadly discussed, and it's really unclear whether it's going to cost 
Ross, uh, anything more than even passing discomfort? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we have not seen a particularly strong, robust sort of a, a confirmation process or a, a Senate that is uh, asserting itself in any of these hearings thus far. You know, to the extent that there are things that start to look connected to other issues of, of sort of corruption, um, to the extent that that is a narrative that takes hold, not just in the, you know, in the belt way bubble, but actually with the constituents of individuals. Um, so, so individual senators start hearing from their their constituents. I'm really concerned about you know the Goldman Sachs cabinet. I'm really concerned about people who have ties to Russia. Maybe that will incentivize them to, to get a little bit tougher, ask some more probing questions. The other thing is we've seen a lot of people withdrawing their names, quote unquote, you know, financial conflicts issues. So that might be an indication that there was insufficient vetting done at the front end. And and now they're discovering some things. Uh. Well, so well been- okay. So I want to. I want to. I want to sort of shift. We only got a few minutes to go, but I want to sort of shift this because when I began talking about the campaign of Russia, one of the things I talked about also was the alignment of the United States, not just with the Russians, but with these far right wing groups in Europe. And these groups are pretty nasty groups, whether it's, you know, UKIP or the National Front or Viktor Orban in Hungary or, or this guy in Holland or any, any of these others. And, and yet it now seems to be a matter of policy of this administration. Again, this is not a question of collusion or corruption. It's just a question of really, really odious policy to work together with these. And we saw Bannon say to Le Pen, I would like to work with you. And now we have, you know, there's this kind of creepy character in the White House, Sebastian Gorka, who, uh, as as far as we can tell, is a liar about his job, uh, is a liar about some of the things he's done in his job, is unqualified for his job as a terrorism analyst, but who has long-standing ties to an anti-Semitic right-wing group in Hungary. When did this happen, that the United States all of a sudden got aligned with the ethno-nationalist nutjobs of the world? I think we can point to the exact moment, and it's the (laughs) moment that Steve Bannon took control of HR and staffing policy at the White House. Um, And he has clearly installed individuals. I mean, I I sort of call it the the NSC as Breitbart comment section. There are, you know, look, personnel is policy. Personnel is policy. Personnel is policy. Those are... Wait, wait a minute. Is personnel policy? (laughs) (laughs) Tweets are endorsements, and personnel is policy. And, And so, you know, these these characters that have seats of power in Donald Trump's uh, ear and somehow connect to sort of his impulses here, they clearly have at the very least sympathies here. On Sebastian Gorka and sort of his qualifications, I will say that I think it was um, Bloomberg News that ran a, a sort of a, an op-ed or, or a, an article about what his um, professional peers were saying about him. And all I can say is if my professional peers said that about me, I would cry myself to sleep. Well, to be fair, uh, it is not a brand new phenomenon to have unqualified political appointees, uh, including embarrassingly unqualified political appointees. Ben I think Rhodes! The, I think I'm not going to name any names. Oh, Ben. Then but that's what you meant. That's what no, you were thinking. No, that's not what I was thinking. I wasn't yes. even thinking of Ben Rhodes. I was thinking of some other people, but I'm not going to name them either. But but Rosa's yeah. right. It's a large, crowded yeah. category. But there's for a this big award. difference there's, between unqualified and malicious. Well, I think there's a difference between unqualified and malicious, and there's, there's a difference between. 
unqualified and lied about qualifications, and there's a difference between unqualified and evil. Um, and I think we're really talking about uh, dishonest and evil, not about – because there is nothing new about just, oh, I appointed my second cousin who was a big donor to the campaign. That's unfortunately par for the course. So I the, the, also the, think, yeah, though, that I'm trying to be as glamorous as Rosa, by which I mean I am going to try and channel her earlier argument that you don't need a conspiracy theory. Maybe they're just bad at what they're doing. And I'm – I go back and forth on whether I would actually encourage Steve Bannon and the people around him to try and affect the French campaign so that they stay out of executive orders on immigration <laughs> to the United States, for example. I think it is at least unproven that any of these people are going to be good enough at their jobs to create the policies that they say that they are so loudly clanging pots together, announcing that they are going to do. Okay, well, let me posit one area where they seem to be fairly successful. And that just has to be, you know, that's just operational structure, right? This really matters. Personnel is policy. Location, location, location also matters. And, and, and how you set up the org structure of the government matters. And I have read all the stories that everybody else has that seem to suggest that, um, for example, Bannon is in all the meetings. Bannon has walk-in privileges into the Oval Office, as does Omarosa, by the way. But McMaster, the new national security advisor, does not. In other words, Bannon has access. McMaster does not. Bannon has set up his own independent think tank, the Strategic Initiatives Group. And I've seen some emails from Gorka in which his signature line says, Sebastian Gorka, deputy assistant to the president, strategic initiatives group, as though that were actually a thing. But, you know, I guess if they think it's a thing, it's a thing. And so on. In other words, they may or may not be super effective at getting what they want to get done done. But the first thing you do is you marginalize the people who might otherwise make a difference. Tillerson seems marginalized. Kelly says one thing in terms of Homeland Security policy, but the policies that are being introduced and implemented are seem to be inconsistent with that. McMaster is the tough guy who will tell the president what he doesn't want to hear, but he doesn't have access and doesn't seem to have complained about whether or not he would have direct access into the office of the White House. Mattis is, you know, the you know, the man who's gonna really be the grown up around the president. And yet, you know, he spends most of his time correcting statements by the president, but not actually changing policies. So it seems to me like Bannon's pretty good at doing what he's doing. Yes, and yet it's early days and all the advantages are in the White House. There of the 63 Senate confirmable positions in the Department of Defense. There's only one confirmed civilian in the Department of Defense, and that's the secretary. I do think it is possible that the White House political staff's strategy is change the structure to create permanent advantages for us. And if the president insists on nominating noble people for the cabinet, make sure they're home alone and therefore you can diminish their effectiveness as much as possible. But those are transient advantages, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, as the great Justice Brandeis said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And what I cannot figure out about about Bannon and his, you know, his evil uh, compatriots is why they're announcing all this stuff 
in advance it's like a Bond of movie. Like I'm not, I'm gonna <laughs> exactly. kill you with a laser <laughs> because they are activating the antibodies against them. And the last thing that I'll say is that, especially in the Pentagon, but also in the State Department. Even without senior confirmed appointees, there is an enormous and very talented staff of people who, you know, they're not close to the president, they're not about the president's policies, and they are extraordinarily dedicated to the good of country. Well, this is sort of a, an interesting counterfactual to the President Obama, where we saw President Obama giving lots of fantastic speeches that the entire world loved, and then there would be no actual policy follow-through. And here we're seeing uh, Trump and his his cronies making comments that the entire world hates. And the question will be, do they have any greater effect uh, uh, in the long run than the Obama happy pronouncements. I agree. I mean, I think I think Corey's absolutely right that sort of this um, this career group. Corey's absolutely Corey's right. Absolutely right. <laughs> Such a rarity. Um, we could get that and, on a loop, you know, just play it over and over again. But you could be your your phone ringtone. Absolutely right. Uh, and that's that. And that's that. There is this this tremendous sort of career bureaucracy, um, and they aren't just by and large sort of dedicated to the proper mission. They also know the system a hell of a lot better than those people do, um, and so. Again, yes, early days, there, there just is the disorientation and, and advantage in the White House. But I think over the long term, the bureaucracy still prevails where it counts. You know, it's very nice that all of you were saying all these nice things about Corey and her being absolutely right. And of course, Corey's always absolutely right. And we get all fan mail and half of it's Corey's right and half of it Rose's right. And, you know, increasingly, as Susan is on, there's a bunch of it that says Susan yes. is right. None of it ever says David is right. But, you know, I can live with that. Um, uh, so long as you guys are getting the limelight you deserve, I'm happy. But you should all turn on Corey because she has another meeting. And so we're going to actually have to wrap up this particular episode of the ER a little bit early because Corey is ditching us for some better off. So speed up on the uh, treadmill, ER nerds. Yeah, you're going to have to work this one out on your own. Or you can go and make that loop that we talked about that just says, Corey is absolutely right. Um <laughs> So, and just listen to that for the last 10 minutes of your workout. We'll hear you. We'll visit you with all of you again next week. And uh, we look forward to that. And uh, we're sure the world will be a better place then because the arc of progress, dot, dot, dot. In the meantime, thanks, Corey. Thanks, Rosa. Thanks, Susan. Thanks to all of you. You have been listening to Foreign Policies the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.